Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Sherry Quinn. A note of caution, that piece of bacon may take on a whole new flavor after today's program. In the new book, Pigtails, An Omnivore's Quest for Sustainable Meat, author Barry Estabrook documents the pork industry and the many horrors within the large American factory farms that are each stuffed to the brim with thousands and thousands of pigs. The treatment of the animals inside also infiltrates the environment outside and pollutes air, water, and crops. It took Estabrook two years full-time to write the book that investigates the other white meat. He joins us on the program to talk about pigtails. What first sparked your idea to write the book? What convinced you to write the book? What convinced me to write the book was an, an, an incredibly good-tasting pork chop. It was uh, six or seven years ago, and I, I had this pork chop that was just, it was just out of this world. I couldn't believe it was pork. You know, it was tangy and juicy. It, 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 it tasted more like a really expensive steakhouse prime rib than it did any pork I tasted. And I, I thought, what's this? And it turned out it was a, uh, it had come from a heritage hog, an old traditional heritage pig. Um, that had been raised on pasture, which is just the opposite of 97% of the the pigs in the United States that are these new fast-growing breeds um, that are raised inside factory farms, don't even get to move, exercise, see the light of day. And and I thought, my God, what what an incredible difference. Same animal, but what a difference. And that that got me um, interested in just exploring everything I could find out about pigs and pig production. Right, and I understand that you've traveled to more than a dozen states. You went out of the country and hun- spoken with hundreds of farmers and slaughterhouse workers and scientists, and you've said that pork is the worst meat you can eat and the very best <laughs> meat as well. How re- receptive were, especially the slaughterhouse workers, uh, to speaking with you, and how did you gain access to these slaughterhouses? Well, throughout the book, um, both with farms and slaughterhouses, there were two responses. I, I was either told, you know, to get the heck off the property or no way we'll see you um, if, they, if they responded at all or I was I was welcomed in. It, it shocked me. Um, no large um, commercial American um, slaughterhouse would allow me in. Um, but I went to Denmark um, to see how their industry operated and they all but insisted that I go in their large commercial slaughterhouse and spent the entire day um, trailing around behind one of the managers, watching every step. They, they, you know, they were proud. There's how we do it. It's state-of-the-art. Small um, small boutique slaughterhouses um, had the same attitude. They, you know, they went to a small slaughterhouse in upstate New York and, and asked the owner if I could come and observe, and he said, absolutely, I have nothing to hide. So it, it's really two reactions. The farm in Denmark... Uh, the, the the larger ones. Typically, how many pigs do they have? Um, you know, Denmark, it surprised me at first, is the pig farms there are every bit as big and industrial and modern as any in the United States. Denmark is a huge pork exporting country. Um, and, you know, the farm I visited there um, had produced about 13,000 pigs a year, one farm, one farmer, um, which would make it, you know, quite a bit above average, even by U.S. standards. But they farmed slightly differently. 
You know, our our farmers claim you can't raise pigs um, in confined buildings without feeding them constant doses of antibiotics, which, as we're learning, results in the evolution of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um, in Denmark, under the very similar conditions, they, they are forbidden to use antibiotics unless the animals are sick. Um, Danish farmers keep their pigs at slightly less density, not a lot, not that you'd notice, but slightly less. They leave the baby pigs with the mothers slightly longer, so little tiny things um, add up to a big difference in, in the welfare of the animal and, and the, the general health of the farm workers. And they also export their pork around the world, is that correct? Oh yeah, they're, they, they're heavily competitive worldwide. The, the, the um, slaughterhouse I visited in in Denmark, when you got to the shipping department, it looked like the United Nations or something, you know. The pigs were going off to um, China, Vietnam, Korea, um, all through Europe, Russia, England, and surprised me, there's a whole big shipment of, of uh, baby back ribs. A lot of our baby back ribs that we eat here actually come from Denmark. They think it's weird we would eat something like a baby back rib. The farms that you did tour in the U.S., and uh, I believe it was one in Iowa, where you saw the sow and her her piglets, and could you describe what you saw when you walked in? What was it like, and what impression first hit you? Well, this is a large industrial pig operation in central Iowa, and <laughs> the first thing was that um, both the farm owner and I, um, before going in, um, stripped naked, um, left our clothes in one room, walked through a shower, and put on um, special clothing on on the clean side, as they call it, um, just to prevent any, you know, us from bringing in any germs, any bacteria. Um, inside, the animals were crowded. Uh, you know, one room I'll never forget was where uh, one barn had a. Um, and over a thousand sows, giant animals, and each sow lived in a tiny little metal cage that really wasn't any bigger than she was. She, these sows live their whole lives. They can't turn around. They can't take a step forward or backwards. They're just in these very, very tight um, crates um, until they have their babies, and then they're moved to a slightly larger crate. As soon as they're done with their babies, they're put back in these uh, these you know, crates that are no bigger than they are. And that's that's their life. The growing pigs have a little more room when they're young, but by the time they're getting mature, they're so crowded that it's pretty much, they really can't take a step in either direction either. They're just jammed together. And is it a smell that stays with you? Is it a smell that you'll ever forget? <laughs> the smell was beyond... It was beyond bad. It was beyond a smell. It was almost like being hit by, you know, a warm blast of, of water or something. It was it was so strong. It was, you know, every bad smell you can think of rolled into one. It was, it was a highly ammonia-smelling, um, manure-y smelling, and then sort of putrid-smelling, like dead dead flesh, all mixed into into one and. Uh, you know, it was, it was not comfortable breathing. My eyes weren't comfortable, and in fact, studies show that people who work in these barns suffer respiratory illness. Are they robots, then, that gut the animals? And can you talk about that process? The large commercial
commercial slaughterhouses, a lot of the work is now done by machines. You know, these <laughs> the pigs are designed to be almost identical to each other. They're genetically designed so that a lot of jobs um, can be can now be performed by machine. Animals can be split, um, heads can be removed, things like that. There's still people in there performing many of the tasks, but but some of the heavier work, more repetitive work, can now be done by machines. Do you know at what age they slaughter a pig? Most pigs are slaughtered um, uh, around six months of age. They go from being three-pound babies to being close to 300-pound animals in, in six months, at which point they're, they're slaughtered. If they're, if they're factory farm pigs, if they're heritage pigs that are being raised on pasture, they may go eight or nine months. It takes them longer to get to size. Okay, and pigs, actually, they can live quite a long time. Is that that correct? Do you know the lifespan of a pig? Well, yeah, that, that's somewhat interesting because um, a lot of people ask that question because pigs don't get to live their full lives, right? Most die before they're six months old, the ones we eat. Um, commercial sows don't really get, those are breeding females, don't really get a full life because as soon as they, um, as soon as the amount of piglets they produce starts dropping a little bit, they're slaughtered and replaced. But I did know, um, talk to a woman who uh, who kept a pet pig. It was a barnyard pig, but she kept it as a as a pet. And uh, that pig lived to be 14 years old, and and pretty much died of old age. What are these so-called dead trucks that you've mentioned? Well, this is a feature of uh, industrial farming that I hadn't really thought of. Spending time in in Iowa on the back roads and. You see these trucks going by that look sort of like gravel trucks, open gravel trucks, except when you look inside or see the tops, over the tops of them, they're full of dead pigs. Um, and it turns out that in these massive industrial farms, um, about 10%, uh, one in 10 of the, of the pigs that are weaned and go, in, you know, go into the barns where they grow up um, don't make it. They, they die for whatever reason, and these trucks simply go through the countryside, and out in front of each of these big big barns is a is a dumpster um, full of dead pigs, and they just dump them in these giant trucks they call dead trucks, and the dead trucks uh, do their route, and then uh, and then go to a rendering plant where the pigs are rendered into the dead pigs are rendered into numerous products including pig food. What were some of your impressions of some of the slaughterhouse workers that you talked to, and were there any that uh, particularly stood out to you, and you know, how, how does their work affect them and their impression of pigs? You know, up until the mid-1980s, working in a slaughterhouse was a considerably better than average paying and no more than average um, dangerous uh, manufacturing job. It was a very good, solid, you know, blue-collar, middle-class job. Um, since then, wages have been in free free fall. They now make, you know, these make 25% more than the average manufacturer worker. Now they make 25% less. It used to be no more dangerous than the average manufacturing job. Now it's one of the most dangerous jobs you can do. It's even more dangerous than, than things like construction, mining. So the working conditions have 
really deteriorated in, in the slaughterhouses and meat processing plants in the last 30 years. And in, in lockstep with that, um, the unions have been, the, the workers' unions have been pretty much um, destroyed. And a lot of the workforce is now um, Hispanic immigrants, many, many, many of whom don't have proper uh, citizenship, proper working permit, and almost none who've you know been properly trained to do the jobs they're doing. So the accident rate is is getting you know out of, completely out of hand. I imagine, and. And in, in the course of your research and in writing the book, and you you must have uh, been fascinated by the intelligence of pigs and and their nature, and especially it was especially interesting reading about Dr. Crony's work training them to use computers. And how did you find Dr. Crony? Well, I think like most people, before I even started researching the book, I'd heard stories that pigs are smart. They are incredibly smart, um, and you know, just reading through. Uh, just reading through uh, academic journals, um, papers on, on animal intelligence, I came across the Candace Crony's work, which she did on pigs, um, where she did actually train pigs to, to operate a computer game and um, to test their intelligence. And it turned out the pigs, the pigs figured it out, and every time they played, they got better. Um, you know, they, they would even sometimes let kids try to figure the game out, and the kid, you know, toddlers, three-year-olds would would have trouble. You know, the, the pigs could master that. Their intelligence is is very surprising. They they have what um, what researchers call a sense of self, which is something that people thought only humans and maybe the great apes had until recently. But pigs have a sense of self. They they. Um, they can look at another pig and predict what it would do, what it might do based on what they would do, and, and sort of act accordingly, which is, is a very high level of intelligence. They know how mirrors work. If you put a mirror in front of your dog or cat, nothing happens. But pig will look at a mirror, be interested, and then it'll figure out, hey, that's me. And, um, you know, if you put a bowl of food in front of a mirror, the pig who knows what a mirror is, won't go for the food in the mirror. It'll look and, and realize, oh, that's reflected, and it'll go off into the corner of the room that the food's kept in. So um, these are feats, again, that only very, very highly intelligent animals can perform. I assume that the stars of her this research were were they Hamlet and Porkchop? Is that correct? <laughs> Well, they, they, they did them, um, they had two pigs at a time over a period of years, and being graduate students, they um, they gave them slightly humorous humorous names. Um, there was Hamlet and Omelette, and Ham and Eggs, and, or Bacon and Eggs, and names like that, until the, the uh, newspapers started catching a hold of the story, and then they decided that they'd better stop naming them uh, slightly uh, humorous because it was serious scientific research. And I understand that the research came to a halt mainly because of funding, and was this research funded mostly by big agriculture? Most of the pig research, uh, it took place in the state in Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania Pig Farm, um, Pig Farmers Organization, funded a lot of it. 
Um, but, you know, agricultural research money is drying up across the board, and it, and it seems that money for things that people might not view as really pragmatic and necessary it has, has completely vanished. And there is also the feeling that maybe big pig industry doesn't doesn't particularly want people to know how smart the animals are. Right, and do you know if Dr. Crony is continuing research with pigs? She's now at Purdue University in charge of a major or, you know, organization within the university dedicated to animal welfare, um, livestock welfare. Her main pig research has come to a halt, although she and her students still do um, smaller experiments. But the big, well-funded study that led to the computer pig game Things like that, there's not funding for. She's now specializing in cats and horses. Some of those stories about pig intelligence research are, are charming. And then the other one is Cy Montgomery's pet pig. Dr. Crony showed the incredible intelligence, in, and your story with Cy Montgomery shows their emotional intelligence. Can you talk about your findings and also how you found Cy Montgomery and, and her pig? Cy Montgomery is probably the perfect person for for pigs to choose if they wanted to, you know, have, have a human being send an ambassador to to tell humans that they're, they're, you know, they're emotional, sensitive animals because she's spent a lifetime writing about human-animal um, interconnectedness and just by happenstance, uh, one day she adopted uh, a, a little tiny sick runt pig that was going to be euthanized anyway and made it healthy and started to grow, it turned into this 750-pound boar, um, huge thing, you know, a hippopotamus, not pig. And he, this animal was as friendly and gregarious uh, as you could uh, imagine, but also extremely sensitive. During the 14 years um, she had the pig, um, Cy Montgomery lost both of her parents. She wrote of this in, in her memoir called A Good, Good Pig. But she lost both of her parents, and normally whenever she came to the to the pig pen, the big pig, whose name was Christopher, would, would greet her like a puppy, like, you know, like eagerly, like your dog might greet you when you come in, always begging for treats and attention. During the time when she, when she was sad, he was very quiet. He would come up to her, nuzzle her gently, but none of these antics, two little tiny grade school girls moved in next door and immediately befriended him. And he let them do anything. They could climb on him, they could wash him, um, they they shampoo him with smelly shampoos, um, massage him. Um, he, he loved them and, and had a special sort of vocabulary for them. Never forgot anybody. And it went the other way, too, occasionally, although he was normally a very gregarious fellow, this pig. If you met somebody he didn't like, he really didn't like them. Um, Cy Montgomery had a friend who met a man. You know, she was telling everybody, "This is the, this is Mr. Wright. This is the guy." And the guy came around and met Christopher the pig. And Christopher didn't like him one bit. <laughs> and sure enough, turned out the guy was a jerk. <laughs> um, so you know, incredible level of emotional intelligence, and he never forgot anybody. Those two little girls moved away, and years would pass between their visits, and, you know, they changed physically, and you know, changed in appearance, and had to have changed in smell. Every time they came, he would he would recognize them and issue the same um, quiet, 
grunting sounds he always reserved for them. Have you raised pigs yourself? I have. Um, I used to raise a couple of pigs a year. I lived in a in, a, in an area, and I had a large barn on the large empty dairy barn, abandoned dairy barn on my property, and the neighbor down the road raised um, piglets. He would just raise them as piglets and then sell them to factory farms. And so every year he'd give me, for you know, very little money, if any, a couple of the, a few of the substandard mm-hmm. piglets mm-hmm. that probably weren't going to make it anyway. And I put them in this big barn and raised them. And so what was that? I found it, I found it helped if, that I named them after politicians whose, uh, <laughs> whose views I didn't share. <laughs> and so what, what what was that like? They're very insistent on getting to know you. <laughs> they they're curious. Uh friend, you know, they they're friendly. It's very hard to you know, I tried not to make pets out of them. Um but it wasn't easy because they're 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 curious and they're insistent and they're intelligent and they sort of want to get to know you and want you to get to know them. So um it was it was, it was, you know, a difficult, at the end, it was, you know, when the end came, it was always a difficult period. Sure. You tell a story in the book about a, a farmer, one of his pigs, that tries to communicate with him, actually. The pig, uh, I believe, took him out to a, a field where there was a broken pipe. Yeah, this was a farmer in Iowa. He raised his pigs uh, on pasture, not a big corporate farm. And one day he was out, and his great big sow sort of came over to him, started nudging him, pushing him toward the barn. So he thought, I don't know, figured maybe she'd had a litter or something. So he he went into the barn, and sure enough, there was a new litter of piglets there. And and he thought, okay, she was trying to show me her pigs. Isn't that nice? And then he turned to leave, and, and she blocked his way. And he's standing there, and he watched as she went over to the watering spigot. She she made the motion to activate it, and no water came out. And he realized that, well, she wants me to fix the spigot. And then he realized that I've never fixed a spigot in her presence before. How would she know that I was the sort of go-to person? But but she did. And went out, got him, brought him in, said to, you know, showed him that the spigot didn't work. So you said also that there are three different kinds of pigs and what what are those three and i'm trying to <laughs> yeah there's i call them three three tribes of pigs that live in the united states and they're all the same species they all can interbreed with each other the first are feral pigs wild pigs they're um, thousands millions of them in the united states they're they're in fact a uh, uh, an invasive species that's getting increasingly problematic, and, and there doesn't seem to be any way wildlife managers can control them. They're just the population of these wild pigs is exploding almost everywhere. Um, they're mostly, you know, escapees from barnyards, uh, a process that started back in the 1500s, um, and then and, and is still going on. Um, some of them are crossbred with. Um, Eurasian wild boars, which were brought over by people wanting to set up hunting preserves. Um, the same species, it's just the wild version of the pig. So um, that's that sort of tribe one. These uh, these pigs that have kind of opted out, they're like Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and then the second tribe is these is, is the most pigs by far. Ninety-seven percent of the pigs in the country live in the, these huge factory farms, and you know never see the light of day, never breathe fresh air, never set foot on anything other than you know hard metal or concrete slatted flooring. Don't get to move. Have to be kept on low levels of drugs just to live long enough to be killed. And finally, there's the uh, a group of pigs that are being sustainably raised. They're often old heritage breeds, which are bred for vigor and, and great taste. And I understand that these feral pigs are causing quite a bit of havoc around the United States. That they are, they are in just about every state in the nation, correct? Yeah, and if you don't have them in your state. You know, you're probably going to get them soon and already. Just don't know whether they're like in 48 states confirmed. And they're the ideal, in a bad way, invasive species. Yeah, they're strong, they're smart. Pigs breed incredibly fast, and, and they have, for a large animal, they have huge litters. A, a feral pig will have, you know, eight or ten babies every eight months. And those babies are ready to, to breed themselves when they're about eight months old. So you can quickly do the math and see why they're spreading everywhere. Um, they can run 30 miles an hour. <laughs> they can jump three feet high. There's not a fence that can hold them back. And they, they, they cause millions of dollars of loss to farmers. They can uproot entire fields. They, in Texas, farmers will plant corn and the pigs will go right along afterwards in the evening and root up all the corn seeds, um, destroy fruit and vegetable crops, and and also they're horrible, horribly um, damaging to wildlife. They they ruin, um, you know, clear-flowing waterways and streams just from their rooting and disturbing the banks. They um, eat the eggs of, of ground-nesting birds like quail and pheasant and wild turkeys. They even destroy the nests of endangered sea turtles on the East Coast um, in areas where they live. So they're, they're, they're a horrible nuisance, and, and animal bio, wildlife biologists just don't know how we're going to control them. Right now, the, the wild pigs are winning. I hear they can be vicious also. I've heard of some hunting parties going out in some rural areas, and, uh, but I've heard that you have to be careful. Well, I mean, a, a pig, a wild pig is generally, it, its first option is going to be either to hide. They're, for a big animal, they can, you know, they can, you can, researchers I talk to report, you know, some occasionally almost stepping on one before it ran away. They can hide. And if, if they don't want to hide, the other thing they will, they will do is run. I mean, it's hard to see wild pigs, even when there's lots of them around. But if they get in a situation where they're cornered, or you come between a female and her piglets, a wild female and her piglets, um, these are large, strong animals with you know tusks that are as sharp as, as kitchen knives. So these feral pigs are causing a lot of a lot of problems and uh, devastating farms and also some species. And then the, the in industrial pig farms 
in which is uh, the problems are human caused. One of the first stories in your book was about when you were in court in Illinois, I believe, and mm-hmm. um, because of problems that a pig farm was causing in this neighborhood that had just had gone up within a couple of years, right? And there were smells and, and other environmental issues with it. And there was a little bit shocking story about a woman uh, being handcuffed in court and arrested for having pamphlets, I believe, in court, and you were almost arrested. <laughs> right. Can you talk about that story that that morning, that those few hours that you were in this courtroom, what happened? And uh, was this the beginning of your research? It came, it's the beginning of the book. It came, you know, well, well into the research itself. But I did, um, one of the lawyers I talked to, who's actually, um, his firm, its main business is um, representing people whose homes and lives, lifestyles have, have been ruined, really, by the presence of the large factory hog farms coming into the neighborhood. It's the stench. It's the water pollution, um, and some of these people, you know, sue uh, under the nuisance laws. And this is, uh, the lawyer said, I ought to come out and see this one case that was going to be unfolding in, in rural Illinois. So I did, got to the courtroom, and, you know, the people there just looked like farm folks from everywhere. And the lawyers began describing this uh, pork company, you know, it's not really right to call it a farm. The pork company bought a small farm and without really telling anybody, erected these four massive buildings and filled them with 15,000 hogs. Immediately problems started to crop up. They, they had a terrible time with, with hogs dying and they didn't dispose of the, uh, of the, of the corpses um, in a proper manner so that they were allowed to build up just in piles, attracting swarms of flies, stinking. When it came time to empty the manure pits under these barns, they they spread the manure on the fields, but the fields weren't big enough or permeable enough to handle what was put on, and so it just the manure just kind of sat on the top of the fields in, in puddles, soggy, swamp-like muck, and uh, so the neighbors sued, and. You know, the lawyers for the pig farmers pointed out that, well, this all might be true, but it was also all legal. The trial adjourned for, for the noon recess, and, and when it came back, the judge uh, tossed out this middle-aged woman who had represented a group fighting um, confinement hog farm operations in Illinois. Um, she had been handing out pamphlets and a book, and he said that could be construed as jury tramp tampering, even though she hadn't handed the book to any jury members. Um, and then he looked at me and, and you know, told me to come into his uh, his, uh, his chambers and said, uh, did you hand a book to the lawyers? And I said, yeah, I, I wrote a book about tomatoes and they wanted to see it, so I gave it to them during recess. And he said, well, I'm not going to jail you like I did the woman, but I'm throwing you out of court. And that was that. It turned out that the lawyer representing the pig farm was the one who um, told the judge that I handed this book to the plaintiff's attorney. Do you know what happened to the woman who was arrested? How long she spent in jail? Well, she was definitely hauled off in handcuffs. 
luckily it was a courtroom. There were probably more lawyers in that courtroom that day than there had been, you know, in the entire county for for years before because both sides had lots of lawyers. Um, and the lawyers got her out on bail. But, um, you know, that was over a year ago, and she's still, the case is still working its way through the legal system. She's not off the hook yet. What year was this? This was um, last spring. Okay, so fairly recent. Not like this spring, but a year ago, April. And you write about uh, an ideal pig farm. I believe it's one of the ideal pig farms in Battenkill, New York. And what makes the farm so... Yeah, it's not yeah. in Battenkill. It's, it's, it's called Flying Pig, a Flying Pig's Farm. And it's in part of upstate New York. Um, and, and the land the land of the farm borders the, uh, the Battenkill River, which is a famous, famous um, New England, uh, upstate New York trout stream. And what makes this farm idyllic, I guess, or especially uh, humane for pigs? Well, first and foremost, um, the pigs—you know—they never see the inside of a crate. They're—they're they're raised strictly on pasture. It means they—they they have acres to to run and romp and root and roll in mud, and play with each other. They have forests they can go into. They have fields they can go into. Um, in the, in the cold months, they—they're still outside. They have these little quanted huts that they—they they take up. You know. Eight or ten of them will pile into one. And there's deep beds of straw in there for them in the winter. The females are never crated. They, they live in sort of a, a pleasant uh, paddock with each other, know each other. Have their uh, when they have their babies, they're brought into a large barn, and each gets a nice big stall. Um, so you know, really, these pigs are raised um, living a pig's life to the fullest, and then um, humans out of that get really terrific pork, really terrific tasting pork. Did uh, Temple Grandin influence this book at all? Yeah, I spent um, I spent a, a, an afternoon with uh, Temple Grandin near the campus of the Colorado State University where she's a, a professor, especially in humane livestock treatment. And it turns out that she's mostly famous for cows, cattle, cattle slaughter, but her PhD work was all done on pigs. How do you feel about her her description of the ancient contract? I think there's a lot there that uh, is meaningful in that her contention is, you know, when animals and humans formed their initial domestic relationship, in the case of pigs, that was probably 10,000 years ago, um, it happened because both got something out of the deal. In, in the case of pigs, they got protection from possible predators. They got to a source of food. You know, the human, the refuse and garbage from the human settlements was was a source of food for them. And they were allowed to live full pig lives. The human beings, of course, got sustenance. And that, that deal stayed in place really until the 1960s when we decided that uh, we would start putting pigs in these vast confinement barns where they had none of the pleasures of the, the, the pig or none of the natural, where they could could exercise none of, of their natural instincts, none of their uh, pleasures that they would, would normally have. And 
Temple Grandin would basically say that as a result of that, the, the art of animal husbandry went out the window, and uh, we, we broke our side of this ancient contract. Very powerful, actually. What's next for you, if, if there's something that you are able to let us know about? Well, you sound like my agent. No, <laughs> I'm, I've got too much of a one-track mind, so I'm still... I'm still recovering. I'm still in in uh, pork production recovery mode. So uh-huh. come up with something eventually, but give me a couple of months. And I understand too that you still eat bacon. So we still eat bacon, but we're very, very picky about where that bacon comes from. Right, and I imagine that you hope that other people are now are more conscious and aware of that. Or is that something that you hope people get from the book? I think it's incumbent upon us whether we're eating a tomato or a piece of pork, to to try to become more educated about how food's produced. I think the whole modern food, uh, industrial food production system is predicated upon people just not knowing a thing about how their food's produced. And that allows allows industrial agriculture to get away with things uh, that it shouldn't, uh, whether it be animal abuse, labor abuse, environmental abuse. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to understand how our food's mm. produced and then act accordingly. Once you understand, that, that's, you know, that's all I can do is just say, please understand, then act accordingly. Some people may think it's fine to go back to the other white meat, a lot of people will say, I don't want to buy into that system. And I understand what... Buy into it. I'd rather buy into a system of humanely raised, uh, non-environmentally damaging food production. Right, and I understand that something that's come through in the book is that the way things can change, it's uh, unfortunately through the court system, not, not through the government. For instance, you know, water contamination issues. Or... Yeah, the government is just been completely absent, you know, off-duty throughout this whole thing. You know, in 1978, the FDA said we should not be giving pigs low levels of antibiotics. We shouldn't be giving any livestock low levels of antibiotics. That was 1978. The government's taken no steps. You know, the same with um, horrible things like gestation crates. The government's taken no steps. Uh, and 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 also with with water pollution, pigs polluting um, the water table. In the case of the water pollution, people had to sue. Um, in the case of crates, it was public opinion got so strongly against them that restaurant chains like McDonald's and big grocery supermarkets went to the pig producers and say, "We want you to change." Um, in the case of antibiotics, it looks like the same thing is happening. It's the big um, buyers who are saying we're kind of getting out ahead of the government, which is which is sad. I mean, the FDA is supposed to be protecting our health. That's not the job of McDonald's. That was Barry Estabrook, author of Pigtails, an omnivore's quest for sustainable meat. Sherry Quinn, Access, Utah.
Time to make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc and the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this special guest recipe for... Breakfast Pasta Frittata. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Next, Sarah Waller of KUOW in Seattle presents this feature story about a tree that orbited the moon. Three, two, one, we have liftoff. On January 31st, 1971, Apollo 14 roared into the clear blue sky. Its destination, the moon. Humans had only landed there twice before. Each of the three astronauts on board had a small nylon pouch containing personal items they wanted to take into space. In Houston, everything looks good here on the ground. Edgar Mitchell took a patch from his college fraternity. Alan Shepard brought golf balls, two of which he famously smacked off the lunar surface into space. But command module pilot Stuart Rusa brought tree seeds, about 500 of them. Because before Stuart was an astronaut, he was a smoke jumper with the U.S. Forest Service. He worked in the Pacific Northwest fighting forest fires. He loved the woods. So when the Forest Service approached NASA about taking tree seeds into space, Stuart stepped forward. He took them in his personal kit. And that meant carrying them a long, long way. I called NASA. To find out just how far those seeds traveled. Dave Williams? That's Dr. David Williams. He's a space scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Center. He watched the launch of Apollo 14 mission as a kid. Well, the distance to the moon from the Earth is roughly about 240,000 miles, but you don't go straight there. You kind of follow this big circular trajectory. Once in the moon's orbit, the seed circled 34 times with Stuart in the command module, while the other two astronauts walked on the moon. Then they came back to Earth. The seeds had traveled about a million miles. NASA put them in a vacuum chamber as part of the decontamination process. That's where things almost went wrong. The pressure was too much for the canister and it burst open. So all the seeds came, basically came flying out and were all instantly exposed to a vacuum. So the fear was that they killed the seeds. But just in case, NASA sent the seeds to the Forest Service to see if any had survived. They had. In fact, almost all of them sprouted. They were healthy and didn't seem any different from a group of control seeds that had stayed back on Earth. So the Forest Service started giving the moon trees away. One sapling was planted at the White House, another at Valley Forge, another one was given to the Emperor of Japan, and one ended up right here in Olympia at the main entrance to the Capitol campus. It's a Douglas fir. It's about 40 feet tall now, you can see the Capitol Dome rising behind it. This Douglas fir tree grows too large to even be this close to a street. Something will need to change. Ray Gleason is an arborist. He was called in last summer when cracks started showing up in the sidewalk next to the moon tree. He did some excavation around the roots and found they were boxed in by a busy street on one side and a sidewalk on the other. And for a tree species that's the third tallest in the world, That's like trying to raise a whale in a fishbowl. Ray fears that within 50 years, the tree will die of root rot if something isn't done to give its roots more elbow room. 
we need to change the roads and the sidewalk here sooner or later. The layout of the sidewalk is part of a grand plan, and it's not something you just tinker with. That's Mary Grace Jennings. She's the cultural resource manager for the state. She says saving the moon tree is not as simple as moving concrete. The sidewalks surrounding the tree were designed by two famous landscape architects, the Olmsted brothers, one of whom helped design Central Park. So moving this sidewalk would mean changing a key design element in the Olmsted's historic plan. And that was really something I was pretty reluctant about. I'd like the tree to last as long as it can, but it is planted in an urban setting. The state didn't change the Olmsted design. However, they did give the tree a little extra space by shifting the location of a wheelchair ramp. But new cracks are already starting to show. No one knows exactly how long the moon tree in Olympia can live in its current location. One proposal is to use seeds or grafts from the original tree to plant a second-generation moon tree in a better location. But David Williams at NASA says that every time a moon tree is lost, we're losing more than a tree. Well, it's like a living artifact. The astronauts and, and all the people who worked on Apollo back then, are, you know, they're, they're disappearing now. So it's very possible that the moon trees at some point 20, 30 years from now, the moon trees will be the only living things that have ever been to the moon. <laughs> the astronauts are now safely inside the command module. Tonight, they'll fire out of lunar orbit and head for splashdown in the Pacific Tuesday afternoon. You're listening to uh, Science Questions and Access Utah with Sherry Quinn. Uh, we ended the program there with a, a special report from KUOW in uh, Seattle. Thanks to them for that and uh, to Sherry Quinn for an interesting uh, report on pigs. Um, and she says you might have trouble eating bacon after that, after that report. Uh, coming up on Monday, Memorial Day, of course, and we have a special program for you. We're going to be talking with the author of a new book, At All Costs, The True Story of Vietnam War Hero Chief Master Sergeant Dick Etchberger. A true story of a courage GI's leading role in a secret radar mission, the resolve he demonstrates during the attack on a mountaintop camp, and the 42-year quest for America to recognize his actions. Dick Etchberger's sons will also be on the program, and they include Rich Etchberger, who teaches uh, at USU Uana Basin out in Vernal. I want to uh, have you tune in for that. That's 9 o'clock on uh, Monday morning on Memorial Day. Then on Tuesday, we have a very interesting program uh, coming up for you. The title of the book is Micro Farming for Profit, From Garden to Glory. The author is Dave DeWitt, who's a food historian and novelist. It's a step-by-step -step entrepreneur's business guide on how to turn unused or underused land into an efficient, high-yielding, profitable micro-farm. Dave DeWitt is also author of Precious Cargo, How Foods from America Changed the World. We'll probably talk a bit about that as well. That's coming up on Monday and Tuesday right here on Access Utah. Hope you join us. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about plants and animals that made their way to Utah and the unintended consequences unleashed by their arrival. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive. 
a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. People aren't the only ones who make journeys. When people traveled from place to place, they introduced new plants and animals into the areas they settled. These non-native species are records of human contact, migration, and colonization. Non-native species often traveled as invited guests, a little something to make new surroundings appear more familiar, or as unexpected stowaways secreted in clothing, bedding, and animal fur. In April 1877, for example, 200 English sparrows fluttered from their crates in the Salt Lake Valley. The Walker brothers, well-known Salt Lake merchants, imported the birds to help eat insects then plaguing Utah's fruit trees. The birds reminded British immigrants of home and were initially welcome. Ten years later, though, most people saw the sparrows as obnoxious pests that decimated Utah's cereal crops. On the other hand, cheatgrass came to Utah as a stowaway. The grass originated in Southwest Asia and came to the United States in the early 1890s. It traveled west with the railroad, hiding inside straw bedding, packing, and commercial grain seed. Sounds harmless enough, but cheatgrass is highly flammable and lengthens the fire season by up to three months. After a fire, the grass grows and spreads quickly and severely limits an area's biodiversity. Some biologists refer to cheatgrass as a biotic virus. In the case of the English sparrows, Utahns learned to live with them. When farmers discovered in 1914 that the sparrow feasted on the invasive alfalfa weevil, the bird was suddenly popular again. Cheatgrass is another matter. To control it, biologists may introduce yet another newcomer to the Great Basin ecosystem, a Eurasian fungus that prevents cheatgrass from germinating. It sounds like a good idea. Unlike the Walker brothers and the English sparrow, researchers today carefully monitor introduced species. But the challenge will be to make sure the new fungus does not cause more problems than it solves. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Rebecca Anderson. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. And thank you for listening to Beehive Archive and Science Questions today during Access Utah. Now a little bit more news for the hour. This week, Utah lawmakers met with three legislators from Colorado who successfully expanded Medicaid in their state. UPR's Brenna Kelly breaks down what steps are needed for Utah to fill our health care gap. Thursday, May 21st, marks the halfway point between the end of the 2015 legislative session and the self-imposed deadline of July 31st for Utah lawmakers to find a sustainable solution for the state's health care coverage gap. The following are a few things Utahns should know about expanding Medicaid. Number one, full expansion would cost taxpayers less than partial expansion. As part of the Affordable Care Act, the federal government will finance Medicaid in Utah for the first year of expansion. After that, the federal share will drop incrementally from 100% to 90% until 2020. From that point on, the federal government will pay 90% of Utah's health care costs, while the state will contribute 10%. Number 2. Governor Gary Herbert's Committee of Six is a bipartisan team of lawmakers. The group consists of Governor Herbert, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, House Majority Leader Jim Dunnigan, Senate President Wayne Niederhauser, Senator Brian Shiazawa, and House Speaker Greg Hughes, who notably opposed the governor's Healthy Utah bill in the 2015 legislative session. Representative Dunnigan adds that the group was able to accomplish a lot three weeks ago in Washington, D.C. As you may imagine, getting those six people together is a calendaring challenge. We are meeting regularly and periodically and working on it. Number three, health care expansions will ultimately equate to 77 $7.8 million per year. Currently, Utah is paying $680 million in implementation costs of the Affordable Care Act and $2.3 billion in Medicaid expenses. Number four, 53,000 Utahns and their families are now affected by the coverage gap, which prevents them from seeing providers and receiving necessary medical attention. 
If lawmakers can come to an agreement, they expect the number of Utahns enrolled in the new coverage will reach 146,000 by 2021. Cox says this number has actually been a concern. So the biggest concern, and it's one that the governor and I have shared, is the inability to project for sure the growth of this expansion and to be able to protect our budgets from overwhelming growth. And lastly, number five. Any plan approved by the Committee of Six will ensure individuals are given the option to receive help from the Department of Workforce Services to find employment or develop skills to improve their current employment situation. Cox says the Committee of Six hopes to have a health care expansion bill to present in a special legislative session in August. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Brenna Kelly. Just 12% of the police officers in this country are African-American, a ratio that hasn't changed in more than a decade. They don't feel that they will be respected by their colleagues to have to deal with overt racism in the locker rooms, patrol cars, or on the street. I'm Kai Rizdal, diversity in the force. That's in our series Behind the Blue Line next time on Marketplace from APM. Friday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thanks again for listening to Access Utah this morning, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. The time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Zorba Pastor on your health.